There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect, and today we're going to be speaking about an idea with very serious implications for the world, and specifically for the people of Ukraine. The idea that peace talks will eventually have to be part of the process that ends Russia's war. To discuss that idea, I'm joined by two fantastic guests with somewhat differing views on the subject. Jonathan Powell is Director of Intermediate and is working on resolving armed conflicts around the world, and he was also Chief Negotiator representing the UK government in the forging of the Good Friday Agreement. And joining us from Vilnius is Vladimir Milov, who was Russia's Deputy Minister for Energy in 2002 and is now a sharp critic of the Kremlin. Welcome to both of you. First of all, let's take stock of the status of the war in Ukraine, about one week shy of the anniversary of Russia's invasion. Overall, We know that the Ukrainian army has defied expectations of many in the West and indeed in Moscow in not only resisting the Russian invasion, but doing great harm to Russia's military along the way. At the same time, we've heard concerns that Russia may be launching a spring offensive. And we've seen in recent hours and days airstrikes being launched by Russia on Ukraine, some of which have hit their targets and some of them have been stopped along the way. So, Vladimir, maybe if I can first come to you. It feels like this war is far from over, doesn't it? Unfortunately, it's clearly evolving into a protracted conflict because both parties have means to continue fighting for quite a long time and even make some gains. And neither party seems to be having a willingness to end this conflict. There's decisiveness on both ends to continue with their own goals for Ukraine to liberate its illegally occupied territories for Putin to still achieve something, because uh, from the standpoint of Russian public opinion and views in the elite, Russia had hardly gained anything worth it in the past year. So I think Putin will be desperate. You talked about offensive, we might see something more. He will be desperate to achieve some more gains before he declares that this war is at least temporary over. So we probably enter a stage of a protracted conflict. You probably remember the Iran-Iraq war of 1980s. It lasted for, unfortunately, about a decade with lots of casualties, lots of losses. I see this this war evolving somewhere Mm -hmm. in this direction. Uh, Jonathan, what about you? You've been an observer of many conflicts around the world across many decades now. Do you agree with Vladimir that we're still potentially in the early days of this war? I don't think we know. Um, It's quite possible that Vladimir is right. And certainly Putin is putting out a message to make people think it's going to be a long war. He 
may be doing that to frighten us. He may be doing that to a Ben population. We simply don't know. It could be that an opportunity for negotiations occurs this year. It could be, as Vladimir says, a decade. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. So in the current issue of, of Prospect, both of you wrote pieces addressing the question of whether negotiation could be part of the way to end this war. And as I said, you have slightly different views on that subject. Jonathan, do you think that Kiev and its allies should have one eye on ending the war through negotiations with Putin at this moment? Well, as I say in the prospect piece, this is clearly not the time for negotiations at the moment. Both parties are about to embark on offensives and both of them will want to see how those go. But equally, there are some who say we must just get victory and nothing short of victory will do. But they don't think about what victory means. Nearly all armed conflicts, unless they end in complete defeat of the other side and the occupation of their country, as in the Second World War, end in negotiations. And it is very likely that this will end in negotiations too. Ukraine will have to live alongside a much larger and much better armed Russia indefinitely. And they'll need to have relations that ensure no repetition of this kind of invasion. So I'm pretty certain there will be negotiations. But as we say, we don't know when those will take place. But what you do need to do is prepare for those negotiations. Mm -hmm. What happens too often is people suddenly are surprised into negotiations and not prepared and therefore don't do as well in negotiations as they should, as the Ukrainians did last time. In the Minsk talks, they were comprehensively out-negotiated by Vladimir Surkov from the Kremlin, who had thought through all sorts of complicated issues the Ukrainians had simply not thought through. Vladimir, I'd love for you to respond to that, because this is the crux of the difference between your perspectives as set out in Prospect. You think that negotiations are more or less impossible, is that right? And can you tell us a bit about why? I'm all for ending this conflict as soon as possible, and if it's possible to switch from all these things that happen on the battlefield to negotiating table, that would be great. However, the conditions are not there. So what I'm against is speaking about negotiations in the most abstract, hypothetical way, ignoring the actual context on the ground. First, I think what is so special about this war is that there was no real, actual pretext for it. I mean, let's be real about it. When we talk about the resolution of multiple wars and conflicts negotiations, usually there was like an interests and positions of one country or tribe versus the positions and interests of another, and they did not match, so it took negotiations to kind of bridge them. Here, Russia never had any problem with Ukraine. Never. Before the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and before this very invasion a year ago, Putin and Russian officials actually were saying things which would confirm that there was not a problem with the sovereign independent Ukraine and uh, they recognized the internationally respected 1991 borders and so on. So all this pretext for the war from Russia's side is totally artificially invented That's a very, very bad quality material for minimizing the differences. Because actually there are no differences, it's just Russia's intent to grab land. How do you minimize it? Through losses at the battlefield. And also what I argue in my article is that the one major impediment to the idea of negotiations is very low credibility of Russia as a treaty party. So Russia's signature in the current circumstances is worth next to nothing. Meaning that if you even make Russia and Ukraine sign something and achieve a ceasefire, 
it means that Russia under Putin will most likely disrespect its commitments, use the, the opportunity to buy time, regroup, replenish and strike again after they did with the Minsk agreements. So my question to those calling for negotiations is, can you guarantee that some sort of temporary settlement will not make things worse? Because, as we saw after the Minsk, Russia was clearly planning this invasion in advance and using this temporary ceasefire agreement to just simply buy time. Jonathan, I'd love for you to come back on that point. I mean, you've uh, been involved in negotiations before where both sides of that negotiation have felt entirely unable, you would imagine, at the outset to trust one another. So how do you build that trust between parties that are so fundamentally at odds? Yes, the I mean, Vladimir is absolutely right. The, this is not the time to be calling publicly for negotiations, to asking Ukraine to back down or anything like that. That would be quite wrong. Uh, equally, he's right when saying that there is no justification for this aggression. Unfortunately, quite a lot of wars are started by unjustified aggression. The question here really comes to, as you say, trust. Is it possible to build trust with Vladimir Putin personally or with a Russian government that replaces Vladimir Putin? Now, that is usually the problem in a negotiation of this sort of an armed conflict because both sides don't trust each other. You know, the British government, the IRA, did not trust each other after nearly 35 years of war. Things had happened, terrible things had been done, and both sides thought the other was completely untrustworthy. Or in Colombia, between President Santos or the FARC, There was no trust. And what the negotiation is essentially about is trying to build that trust, trying to build some belief that the other side will actually implement what it promises to do at the negotiating table. And interestingly, the trust doesn't get built just by the negotiations themselves, because when you end up with a piece of paper, as Vladimir says, at the end of a negotiation, that is... um, You have that because the two sides don't trust each other, but it doesn't actually make them trust each other anymore. It's when you build into that very clear implementation provisions and measures to actually monitor and make sure that both sides do what they're promised to do. In the case of Vladimir Putin, it would be very hard to trust him. But then it was very hard for us to trust the IRA after the terrorist acts that they had committed during the Troubles. So that is always the art of the negotiation. Is it possible to build trust? Or is it not possible to build trust at the moment? We find it really hard to conceive that. If anyone had asked someone in Britain in 1985 whether it was ever going to be possible to negotiate seriously with the IRA, Mrs Thatcher would certainly have said no. And yet it became so over time. What kind of measures are you talking about that you build in or like in, in past negotiations that you have built in? What, what kind of things are we talking about there? Well, in terms of the implementation, I mean, if you think, for example, of the Oslo Accords in the Middle East, we had a lengthy negotiation, a secret negotiation that built trust between the negotiators. Then when the agreement was announced, the Oslo Accords, there was great celebration on both sides, but neither side actually implemented the accords that they'd signed up to. And they collapsed back into the Second Intifada. Things were actually worse than they had been before. With the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, that did not solve the problem. There were another eight years of difficult negotiations to actually get them implemented and up and running until we had the chuckle brothers of Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness sitting alongside each other, having been at war for all that time, have been co-responsible for starting the conflict. Here they were actually sharing power in government, something one never would have believed. And it wouldn't have happened if you'd built into it this implementation machinery. An example of Colombia, where, again, the FARC had been at war for 50-odd years, nearly a quarter of a million people had been killed, You had to build into it very detailed provisions of when the weapons would be given up, how they'd be given up, how the the fighters would be reintegrated. And then you needed the UN in that case, UN Security Council, 
to monitor the implementation and accredit it when it happened. You need those kind of things built in. Again, it's very hard to imagine that when we're dealing with someone like Putin, but you will have to do it in the same way as we have in the past if you're going to get to a successful agreement. I think these cases which Jonathan are mentioning are remarkable because they also illustrate that approach to peace and peace negotiations become possible after leadership dramatically changes in one of the negotiating parties. Good Friday Agreement, it was signed under Tony Blair. I don't think there would have been a possibility if Margaret Thatcher was still around. Sorry, I don't want to interfere in the complicated politics of the British Isles, but still. Also, same with Oslo Accords and its hack. When he appeared, this became possible. When he was assassinated, effectively, this process was dead. And Colombia, pretty similarly, if there was President Uribe still in charge, there would be no peace agreement. I think he fiercely criticized these negotiations and so on. So leadership change in one of the negotiating parties is essential. And we got to understand that Vladimir Putin, first, he is unrestrained in his actions, neither by his elite nor by his society, nor by some, okay, he has some resource constraints now, which are mounting because of sanctions, and that's the problem. But he still feels that he has the resources to continue to wage the war, and there is basically nobody challenging him in power. So there are no preconditions for the peace talks in the, you know, observed at least medium-term period of time. As long as Putin stays mm-hmm. in power, this is no Colombia, this is no Good Friday Agreement, and he's no Itzhak Rabin. So all these analogies work in the most abstract way. But the reality on the ground is that we're dealing with an unrestrained, one of the most brutal dictators in history, uh, who is committed to achieve his goals at any cost, including some absolutely nefarious things like releasing the the murderers and prisoners to send them to fight in Ukraine and giving them amnesty. So uh, we really got to appreciate what kind of a difficult man we have a power in Russia so that all these analogies about negotiations of the past, I don't think they simply work in this uh, situation. Vladimir is, of course, right that all of these conflicts are quite different. I mean, I wouldn't compare Vladimir Putin to Rabin or Santos or even Tony Blair, but I'd compare him more with Jerry Adams or someone like that, who has committed pretty major crimes, but who it was possible to to make peace with in the end. Now, the thing about Putin is that we would certainly like to have some different leader than Putin, but we're in no position to do anything about it. It's the Russian people who are going to have to decide how and when to replace him. It certainly would be easier to negotiate with a successor, at least we think it would. It depends who succeeded him. But we have to remember that even opposition leaders in, in Russia believe that Crimea believe, belongs to Russia. So there still have to be a negotiation with them. The question... Actually, no. I, Jonathan, I have to make a correction. You had some factual mistake in your piece because Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny never called for Crimea to be part of Russia. We all, including Navalny in principle, adhere to the internationally recognized 1991 borders And Navalny condemned the Crimean annexation on day one when this referendum, shame referendum, was held in March 2014. So I just wanted to avoid confusion here. No, we don't want Crimea. We want Russia to be within its internationally recognized borders. Um, That's it. You're absolutely right. He condemned the annexation. He has said in interviews that he does regard 
Crimea historically should have been Crimea, but, but you're right, you're right in general. I think the problem with Putin is a different problem, which is the, I mean, well, it's, it's that problem, but it's an additional problem, which is that he has committed war crimes of a very major sort. And the difficulty is, how do we negotiate with people who have committed war crimes? How do we actually live with a leader in place uh, who has done terrible things? Or are we going to fight until there is another Nuremberg trial in which Putin is brought to trial in The Hague? That is a very difficult decision that's going to face all of us in the West and elsewhere. Uh, is that something that we are prepared to keep fighting to do or not? In the case of, uh, of um, the Balkans, we didn't fight until Milosevic was brought to, to trial. We fought in Kosovo until he withdrew from Kosovo. And then it was actually the Serbian people who brought down Milosevic. And then it was possible to bring him to trial. So that's the problem we face with Putin. We can't remove him. We do not have the ability to do so. If the Russian people do. We're all going to be in a much better position. But we may have to live with Putin in power for a very long time. And in those circumstances, we need to think about how we're going to do it. If Vladimir, if one of the sort of key... Uh key elements of making a negotiation possible is is that question of leadership. Um, and as Jonathan said, to, to some extent, um, the Russian people, uh, that the future of that story lies in their hands. Um, but is there anybody in Russia who could be in that hypothetical situation where the Russian people decide to remove Putin? Who could be that trustworthy face? Are, are there... Russians behind the scenes who would be able to to have those kind of negotiations in a way that Kiev could trust? I think we need to look what happened before the war. And there is a very clear connection between the total destruction of organized opposition in 2021 in the year that preceded the war with the imprisonment of Navalny and many other opposition leaders or forcing them into exile. And what is important, declaring the opposition activity fully illegal. This is something that not happened in the previous 20-plus years under Putin. Navalny's uh, organization was declared an extremist network with up to 15-year prison term for those who participate in it. What happened before is that before the war, Putin's approval ratings have plunged to historic lows. He was universally condemned across the country for major failures of his policies. And we had these major street rallies, uh, protest demonstrations across the country demanding change. So opposition was not a marginal force by any means. It was the biggest political force in the country in terms of the potential of bottom-up popular mobilization. So we need to restore that moment. We need to put the pressure on Putin's regime, not only from the side of Ukrainian military resistance and Western sanctions, but we need also to bring back the third biggest player, which might be a decisive player in this regard. Russian society, where there is a strong momentum against Putin, but it is being currently very strongly oppressed. People face 15 years in prison for being in opposition, 15 years in prison for rising the reactions of the Russian army in Ukraine. So that's, that's the menu you have for breakfast. You choose for, for which actions you can get a long prison term. However, what I see is that this fear might be receding over time. So we need to reach out to the Russian civil society, work with it and encourage it to defend their rights, defend their ability to uh, stop their leadership from uh, waging this uh, aggressive war. I think it will be a game changer. Uh, Putin feels, as I said, he feels unrestrained uh, by public opinion only because uh, he doesn't see any problem so far. But 
everybody's talking about him calling a second way of mobilization uh, after the first, the effects of the first uh, war expired. He's not doing that because his approval severely plunged after the mobilization announced in September. So to a certain extent, he does care about what Russians think and do. So again, we need to wake up that sleeping giant to create restrictions for Putin's aggression at home. Before that happens, while he feels unrestricted, I believe he will continue to wage the war. And in his inner circle, there's basically no one to challenge him. He cleaned that out a long time ago. There's been decades of negative selection. These people are too loyal, incapacitated or scared to do anything. So we need to reach out to Russian society. And I think that mm-hmm. there is... Hope. Can I just ask what a question about- of Vladimir? Because I think this is a fascinating, fascinating subject about the chances of replacing Putin. I mean, is there really no chance of the elite turning him over? Is there no chance of the, the people around him or the oligarchs or the military leaders who have suffered? Or even from the military hardliners, the so-called military bloggers, is there no chance that they will throw him out? Because it seems at the moment Russian society is so badly repressed, it's very hard to see how they could rise up unless there was a general uprising of the sort of 1917 sort that would overthrow him. If we are choosing between the elite and the society who will overthrow him, I'm with the society part, because the elite is extremely weak. I used to work in the government for six years. I know personally a lot of people who are still in there and continue to communicate with them somehow. They're, first, they're extremely afraid of being monitored and watched. Like what folks are saying to me is that we cannot have a one-on-one conversation about how bad guy Putin is and how his policies are wrong because we fear that this will be recorded by the FSB and reported. So a meeting of three, four, five, six people discussing ousting Putin is impossible. Question number one is nobody's sure who's going to snitch on you and report it uh, to Putin. Other thing is that Putin over years has been building a system of defending himself against any potential coups. Do you know that for, for once when Khrushchev or Gorbachev were ousted, they were cut from communications? So what Putin did for the first time ever, he transferred secret communications from FSB, the security service, to his personal presidential guard, FSO, the Federal Guard Service. So FSB cannot cut him off. Nobody can. Moreover, he listens to anyone and not the security services. Generals, when generals are allowed into Putin's room, they are being disarmed like a couple of miles away. And moreover, it, 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 it makes no sense anymore to roll tanks into Moscow because Putin is not in Moscow. Nobody knows where he is. He's got this dozen of residences, Valdai, Altai, Bacharov, Ruche, or Nova Agarova. And so you roll tanks where? <laughs> this is a very classified information about his uh, actual whereabouts. Oligarchs, since the financial crisis of 2008, they were gradually deprived of economic power. They are mostly dependents now. They, they depend on state aid or benefits given by the state. Putin can destroy their business in 24 hours. So uh, I don't believe that uh, this elite will be capable of doing something. The past year, I think, proves me right. But society has great uh, potential. If you look at what happened uh, before the war, we had actually a decade of major protests across the country, including not just Moscow and St. Petersburg, but up to 200 cities 
places where you never saw on the Russian political map uh, before. So that potential is still there. It's just uh, suppressed by extreme repression, but it will wake up. I feel I have a, a lot of communications with my audience back at home, and I feel deep anger that is awakening. At some point, people will overcome fear. So I think it's the society that is most, most likely to wake up and restrain Putin rather than the weak and incapacitated. Vladimir, could you say how you think the mobilization will play out? If Putin does try and mobilize another 500,000 men, how will society react to that, do you think? Absolutely negatively. We already saw a glimpse of that in the autumn. There was a sharp plunge of approval to Putin. It will be even more so because during the first wave of mobilization last fall, Putin actually gathered the cream of the crop, the most capable and ready people who had less objections to be sent to the war. Whoever he hasn't mobilized yet are much stronger against being sent there. So there will be definitely a very serious backlash, a much bigger resistance, which is why he is hesitating. A lot of experts have been saying that after New Year there will be um, another round of mobilization, but we are approaching the end of winter and it's not coming and there are serious restraints for Putin in doing that, which is good news. I mean, the other part of that, that story of pressure alongside military pressure by the Ukrainian army in Ukraine, the popular pressure from the Russian population, is the role of, of the West and the tools that are in in the Western hand, mainly, I guess, economic sanctions. Jonathan, could you say a little bit about what role you think they have? Well, uh, sanctions tend to be what governments reach for when they're not prepared to take military action. You know, we've left Ukraine to fight by itself. We've provided them with equipment, thank God, and large amounts of it, which have been very helpful. But we're not in the end prepared to fight with them for their freedom and indeed for our freedom. So we tend to reach for sanction in those circumstances. My observation about sanctions around the world is that they have effect, but it's mainly the threat of sanctions that have effect. Once you put sanctions in place, people find ways around them, and particularly leaderships, just in the way that Saddam Hussein found ways around it for himself. It was the Iraqi people who suffered, not, but not Saddam himself. And I fear that will be the same with Putin. Putin isn't going to have fewer palaces because of our sanctions or less food. It's the Russian people that will. And maybe the Russian people will then put pressure on Putin, but that's quite a long-term project. Mm. If I may add to this, uh, I don't think we need to look at sanctions as some, you know, magic silver bullet. Uh, the one thing that will change uh, everything kaleidoscopically. Sanctions should be considered in a broader context as part of the number of tools to influence Putin, of which Ukrainian military resistance uh, obviously is key. Uh, and we would have been, uh, we wouldn't have been sitting discussing the, the course of the war now if uh, Ukraine actually uh, totally surrendered to Putin like he had expected uh, a year ago. So it's actually a great thing that they have this willingness to resist and defend their land. Uh, and it's great that the West have coordinated to supply them with weapons, maybe not as fast as we want to see it, but still there was a great progress achieved. Sanctions is the second uh, important part, and yes, they have an impact. I've been writing about this extensively, including my January piece in the Foreign Affairs uh, magazine. But bottom line is that they are having a devastating impact, and Russian society feels that being unplugged from global systems 
is not a very pleasant uh, thing. So uh, the third part, again, uh, all in all, Russians in mass will have to understand uh, that you cannot wage aggressive wars like that. It's not Ukraine's fault. It's not NATO's fault. It is our fault that uh, Russian soldiers have set foot uh, on Ukrainian soil without any reason for it and so on. And Russia will have to pay for it or reconsider. Uh, many people in Russian society begin to realize, if, if you look at opinion polling data, it's clearly shifting in the opposite direction that Putin wants it to. Uh, support for the war plunges. Realization that war causes uh, more problems than doing Russia any good is increasing. And moreover, more and more people learn about the atrocities, war crimes, and what we're actually doing in there, not what they're being told uh, on Putin's state television. So, unfortunately, all this military resistance, sanctions, changes in Russian public opinion, this does not happen mm-hmm. fast. This does not happen at a wave of a magic wand, mm-hmm. you know. But it, it, it still is important to understand that we need to go down that road however long it yeah. takes. So for you, the if I understand correctly, would you say that the key criteria to make negotiations possible is po- popular resistance in Russia leading to a change of leadership? Is that the only way? We'll see. When Putin feels that he's restrained... Uh, currently, I, I think he has a lot of illusions about it, but he feels he's unrestrained. He has this resource supremacy, um, unlimited manpower, territory, oil and gas, weapons, uh, military enterprises, uh, steelmakers, and so on, uh, global player at the agriculture and food market. He feels that he's got a lot of leverage to still influence the situation, and more importantly, outlast and outweigh the West. He thinks that the West is weak, because uh, you are subject to popular democratic elections and the public will, will get worn out, tired of this war, uh, of inflation, of rising energy costs, whatever. But when he will feel restraints, sanctions are really biting, Ukraine regaining more territory, domestic public opinion uh, changing, he might change his behavior. We don't know when this tipping point will come, But it will definitely come because his resources are no match to the resources of the collective Mm -hmm. free world. Jonathan, I'd love to hear your response on that. How how best can Putin be rapidly and effectively restrained to get to the point that Vladimir is speaking about? Well, I think as Vladimir says, it's not something that happens rapidly. Clearly, what what Putin is trying to do is to try and outlast the West, to show patience where he believes that we are... uh, we have a short attention span that we will crumble under pressure that the West will divide. I have to say, so far, he's been disappointed that hasn't happened. You know, we've been through a quite difficult winter. We're nearly coming out of it. And actually, uh, Germany and the other countries have not broken away uh, from the others. No one is actually calling for immediate surrender by Ukraine or a settlement. So I think uh, we'll have to wait to see if public opinion impacts on Putin. It hasn't so far. Uh, one would like to hope that it will, but it would have to be quite dramatic. And one should remember, I suppose, the 1917 revolution only happened three years uh, into the uh, First World War. It took a long time for most appalling defeats and pressure militarily to impact on the leadership. So we couldn't expect that to happen overnight. I want to go back to one thing that Vladimir said earlier on, which I think we agree on. One of my worries is that what Putin will try and do is call for a ceasefire at some stage. He'll suddenly, if he gets a bit more of Donetsk, 
and say he can get almost to the outlines of the oblast. He may then declare a unilateral ceasefire and say, OK, I'm ready to stop, and then try and push on Germany and other members of NATO and say, look, uh, you've got to persuade the Ukrainians to stop too. And my worry in those circumstances is we'd end up in 2014 again with worse situation, a frozen conflict, Putin able to use that as leverage against the Ukrainian government to stop it developing in the EU direction, to regroup and be ready to attack again in worse circumstances. And I do think, although that's not the absolutely worst outcome, that would be one of the worst outcomes if we were tipped back into a frozen conflict. I think we do need to settle this once and for all. If I may jump in, I totally agree on this. Because uh, knowing Putin and the Russian leadership, I can definitely say that they have accumulated a lot of experience uh, with the past 12 months of the war. They now know uh, what have been their mistakes. So if they are giving a period to buy time, regroup and prepare for another offensive, next time the offensive will be a much more dangerous and uh, probably much more effective one for Putin on the background of Ukraine being significantly weakened economically. That's another impact of uh, the current war, which is pretty tragic. Their economy had contracted dramatically. Because there's this risk of the war, investors will not go in. Ukraine will heavily depend on international uh, financial aid. Uh, this will be obviously limited because the West does not have an, you know, uh, endless uh, uh, money in the pocket and so on. So when Putin strikes next time, being more prepared, uh, more experienced in how to particularly do it, I think that will be really the worst outcome of the potential frozen conflict. Which means that frozen conflict, I agree, is one of the worst uh, scenarios. And how in that situation should, how should Kiev prepare for such a possibility at the moment, Vladimir? I think the best way is to continue to return and deoccupy as many more lands as possible before we reach that tipping point with Putin. Putin is gradually weakened by all these developments that, this, that we discussed. So to, to act quickly to retake, deoccupy more of the occupied lands as quickly as possible. That's the strategy to go forward. To negotiate with Putin, if negotiations are ever to happen, when Putin is in the weakest possible position and Ukraine is on the move, uh, on, on the offensive. That will be the best setup uh, for negotiations. Right now, when we saw some kind of a stalemate on the battlefield for the past uh, few months, uh, the frozen conflict in the present shape will clearly give Putin an upper uh, but hand. Whilst trying to regain that territory, do you think that Kiev needs to have to have one eye on the possibility that they're asked to negotiate to come to the table and to try and resolve? I mean, as you say, there's no differences to settle, but to try and resolve what would then be a frozen conflict. Do they have the capacity and should they be thinking about that? I think the uh, the answer from my experience elsewhere is that what they should try and do is concentrate on fighting and talking in those circumstances. In other words, they should not accept a ceasefire because that will put them in the danger of having a frozen conflict. Mm. And they'd be better off still fighting, as Vladimir says, still trying to regain territory. But they may come under such pressure that they need to actually enter into negotiations if that is what Putin is offering. And they've set out their peace plan, their 10-point peace plan, which they can then pursue in such negotiations. What I think is important is that we support them in those circumstances militarily, absolutely, but also in helping them in negotiations. Because I have bitter experience of the 2014 circumstances when they found themselves being boxed into a corner in the negotiations of Minsk and finding themselves agreeing to a sequence they could never possibly implement 
Parliament, where they were required to accept referenda on Ukrainian territory while still occupied by the Russians, which can never be accepted by the Ukrainian people. So I think it's really important that, A, they don't go into a ceasefire in those circumstances because of the risk of, a, uh, of enabling Putin, and B, that they are helped in negotiations as they have been in war when we eventually get into serious negotiations, which may, as Vladimir says, still be some way off. Mm-hmm. Vladimir, just to give the final word to you before before we wrap up, um, does that situation of fighting and talking, you know, not giving up the, the battle to reclaim land, continuing to put pressure on the Russian military, but at, at the same time having conversations about a way to end the war, does that sound like a plausible future for Ukraine to you? Oh, I'm all for having conversations and negotiations to end the war. What I'm against for uh, is arguing for negotiations as a way to end the conflict mm-hmm. now in a most abstract and hypothetical way, ignoring the actual context and ignoring the consequences uh, of uh, potential ceasefire in the, uh, some observed period of time mm-hmm. in the next few months or so on. Many of This is not Jonathan. I agree with most of uh, Jonathan had to say about this, and we have to think about the possible negotiating strategy. But uh, there, th- this is not much being shaped so far at the moment because of the unwillingness of uh, parties to negotiate because of low credibility mm-hmm. of Russia as a negotiating party, because of Putin's stubbornness. So I'm for discussing approach to negotiations in a very practical way, assessing the reality on the ground and the dangers of a frozen mm-hmm. conflict, which we spoke about. What I'm against is waving this flag of negotiations as an alternative for Ukrainian resistance and retaking the occupied lands. Many of those people, like, you know, Henry Kissinger's style, Mm. who speak about this, they're really ignoring the actual context. And it might produce monsters further down the road. I think we already have enough experience with this after the Minsk agreements and and, uh, the post-2014 frozen conflict in uh, Donbass. We need not to repeat that mistake. Well, thanks so much to Vladimir and to Jonathan for joining. It's been a really fascinating conversation and really interesting to hear you both respond to each other's arguments that you'd already set out in prospect. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And if you at home did enjoy listening to this conversation, then pick up a copy of the magazine or go to our website where you can read Vladimir and Jonathan's arguments in full and figure out what you yourself think. In this issue, you'll also find writing from comedian Rosie Holt, architecture expert Dayan Sujic, environmental campaigner Bill McKibben and many more. But that's all that we do have time for this episode. So thanks very much for listening and look out for another episode of the Prospect Podcast next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.